Welcome to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. This is a podcast where we talk all things culture, leadership and teamwork across business and sport. You can find the Culture of Things on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Make sure you follow our socials so you don't miss out on our exclusive content. Hello and welcome to the Culture of Things podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rogers, and this is episode 49. Today I'm talking with Brett Putter. Brett is an expert in company culture development. He's consulted by companies and leaders worldwide to help design, develop, and build high-performing cultures. Brett is the CEO of Culture Gene, a culture leadership software and service platform. Prior to founding Culture Gene, Brett spent 16 years as the managing partner of a leading executive search firm based in London, working with startups and high-growth companies in the UK, Europe, and USA. In 2018, he published his first book, Culture Decks Decoded, and his second book, Own Your Culture, How to Define, Embed, and Manage Your Company Culture, in September 2020. After interviewing and conducting eight months of research into companies like GitLab, Basecamp, Hotjar, Zapier, Buffer, TopTal, Automatic, and others to understand how they operate, Brett found that there are nine fundamental best practices that these companies focus on. The focus of our conversation today are these nine best practices that need to be implemented in order for companies to manage the challenges that come with running remote and hybrid work environments. Brett, welcome to the Culture of Things podcast. Brendan, thanks very much. I'm uh, excited to, to join you. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure again. And even though you are a man fr- originally from the UK, you're living in Portugal. Sounds like a pretty cool place to live, mate. Yeah, it's not bad. Although at the moment it's full lockdown, uh, so it's um, I may as well be on the moon. But I've really, when we arrived here, we had a month of of bliss and then lockdown. So, but it's we feel the weather's better, the uh, wine's cheaper. I found the right stake, so we're all good. Everything's good. Oh, mate. Well, look, sorry to sorry to hear about that, but I'm I'm sure things all get back to normal hopefully soon. I also wanted to ask you, so I I always find this stuff pretty interesting. Years and years ago when you left school, went to university, got a degree, that was sort of the the thing to do. Nowadays, you need to leave school, not only get one degree, you need to do two, three and four degrees and a master's or whatever to stand out. You've taken that from the book perspective. You've not just written one book, you've written two. Why did you take up the challenge of writing a second, mate? Yeah, well, it actually, it it wasn't really deliberate it wasn't deliberate it was a little bit by mistake so um own your culture has been a, a painful labor of love so i interviewed over 50 ceos of high growth companies and blogged about those interviews and then decided to take the content from the blog and write a write the book and the first version of the book i asked my wife to review and she having had a look at it she said do you really want my opinion and when when a Romanian woman asks you that, you need you need to maybe just run and hide and cry. And ultimately, what had happened is, is I just I, I hit a wall where I just couldn't see the words for the trees, and um, I decided to write an ebook. It was a marketing book on culture decks because I'd written this blog post that still to this day is the most read blog post on a monthly basis because people are really interested in the subject of culture decks and how to write a culture deck. So I decided to just write a marketing ebook and it scaled and scaled. And I enjoyed writing it because it was me commenting on slides that I'd chosen from over a hundred decks, the best decks that I felt were you know, relevant and these slides are the best. And I found it much easier to write and I really enjoyed it. And then to actually finish the second book first, and then went to the first book second, and it was like that writing the, the, the writing Culture Dex Decoded had cleared the cash. And I relatively enjoyed right, sort of finishing Own Your Culture because I had a fresh mindset, fresh start to it. So none of this was planned. It's really the result of multiple failures. Like many great things. You got a plan for a third? I do, but, wow, I'm going to have to pull all the 10 fingernails and toenails out of my body before I go there. Own Your Culture broke me and and my wife at the end. It was it was really hard work getting it done. 
Yeah, well, sounds like you better take a break, mate. You don't want to, don't want to have that sort of impact. So, so Brett, the focus of our conversation today, as we said in the introduction, is understanding the nine principles through your own research that can really help leaders with working remotely and, and some hybrid challenges there as well. It's actually focus of chapter 12 in your book, Own Your Culture. So we're not going to review the whole book. We're going to focus on that area because it's really topical at the moment. But before we go into that level of detail, what challenges have you seen with the clients that you're working with around the world that got disrupted, that word COVID came in, all of a sudden organizations that maybe really didn't embrace working remotely, they had no choice. They had to work remotely. Tell us a little bit about those challenges you saw, particularly for leaders. Yeah, so I think there are two very clear challenges or two roots of challenges. The first one is companies that had worked on their culture and invested pre-COVID found this hard to do, but not as hard as companies that hadn't because they had values. They had there were things that they could lean on that were real pre-COVID and are still real today. And, and they can look at that North Star and go, we're still, our mission is still the same. Our vision is still the same. Our values may have to adapt a little bit, but we're still there. The companies that didn't do any work pre-COVID because they were lazy, because they had an office that did a lot of the work for them, are really finding it a struggle now. And they're finding it. A, they're finding a case of people don't know why they're actually doing what they're doing. Yes, they are happy to have a job, and yes, they are working really hard. But the real engagement, the real commitment, the real that that, that core element that happened in an office because of the vibe in an office is no longer there, and so their cultures are degrading really quickly, daily, because people are forgetting what it was like to be in an office. And they don't have any glue. They don't have any of that culture glue. That's really the, the, the fundamental difference between the two. And I'm finding that companies that are adapting quickly, in other words, saying, okay, how are we going to, what are we going to do now to take A, advantage and B, shore up where we are, are the companies that actually invariably worked on their culture pre-COVID. Have you noticed any changes or adaptations that organizations and leaders have made through those initial, oh, wow, what do we do here? Or we've, you know, some of that culture is, is eroded. Is there one or two things that people have done to learn from the process and adapt? Because some of these countries, again, like Portugal, you said you guys are in lockdown, they're still working through this now and their workplaces are still very, very different to what we're experiencing in Australia. A lot of our places are you know, they're looking at the hybrid situation and going back into the workplace at least a couple of times a week, um, sometimes more often. I'm seeing the opposite at the moment. I'm seeing a lot of companies have leaders have their heads in the sand. They're hoping that this goes back to normal. So they're, they're hoping that when we go to hybrid, we're going to run hybrid the way we ran our previous business. So or the business pre-COVID. So they're going to they're going to run it in a way that is you know we don't have to change much. We just have we just now have a have a percentage of our employees working somewhere else. That's actually a concern for me. So the concern is that you think you can, as a leader, you can you don't have to adapt how you lead an organization now that you're in a hybrid situation because it feels like yes, we're going to be in the office more. But actually, what we're seeing is even though you have an office, people are in the office less. On the other hand, what people are doing it's almost a gut instinct level is social connection. Because if you don't get social connection right, you, it leads to loneliness. And the next step towards from loneliness is ultimately burnout or mental health issues. And so I'm seeing, I'm seeing companies go, what, you, what happened in the first lockdown was, okay, let's try a bunch of stuff that didn't work. Now let's work out what really connects with our people. Let's work out how to really get a sense of understanding of this is going to be different and we have to, as an organization, as a company, adapt. It's not just the leadership team's responsibility to say, make these changes and let's try this or let's try that. It's the whole company's responsibility to adapt to this new way of working and the new way of being socially connected. I have to say it's very, very concerning from my side to hear you say that you know, some leaders have got their heads in the sand and, and maybe they're in, just in denial. Are you seeing that denial, let's say, at various levels of the organization or is it just maybe with the, the mid to lower management or are you seeing it with very, very senior managers in organizations? I'm seeing it I'm seeing at the CEO level and down. Actually, one of my clients 
we did an exercise with the senior leadership team to, to have a discussion about what those hybrid work look like. And he said, once your offices are back open, I don't think we necessarily need to think about this as, as hard as we are because people are going to come into the office. And I said, okay, I'm not going to argue with you. What I'm going to, well, Let's do a survey of your 75-person company. And across the board, everybody said, we will not be in the office more than two days a week. And he was absolutely shocked, absolutely shocked by this because he thought once the office is back, because he actually is a people person. He likes the cut and thrust. He likes the vibe. He likes that thing. So he thought everybody would, yeah, I mean, but actually turns out that no, you know, and in his situation, engineering are not coming back. They're now going to be fully remote. Professional services are going to come in once a month. Marketing are going to come in twice a week. Sales, the SDR is going to come in four days a week. Account execs are going to come in two days a week. And he actually came to me, he said, first of all, I'm shocked by this. But secondly, how do I manage this? How do I control my culture? And I said, I said, you don't, you're now going to adapt to this. And this is a, a client who actually was paying me to do this. And I was quite surprised by his, his response to this. But I'm seeing this time and time again, where I talk to leaders and they go, why do I need to understand about remote work best practices if we're going to go to hybrid? Yeah, you mentioned the, the survey you've done with that leader and it was a survey on a television show I watched only in the last few days actually so it was really coincidental given the preparation I did for this interview. I don't know the survey numbers, the, the sample size but it talked about back to work and workers' preferences remote versus face-to-face and 10% said that they preferred face-to-face, 16% preferred remote and 75% preferred a combination so that hybrid model. So some pretty amazing numbers there. Yeah, I think the cat's out of the bag. And what, what did happen is a lot of people thought I would like to work from home or I'd like to spend more time with my family or I'd like to spend less time traveling. But leaders said no. And now leaders have been forced to realize it. And I'm, I'm seeing a bunch of leaders who are just saying, you know, I was one of those. I just said, no, I have to be able to control the environment. And now I realize my people are productive. I do think there's a moment that we're going through a moment of false productivity, though. I don't think the productivity that that remote, forced remote environments are experiencing is real. What do you mean by that? It's real in terms of, yes, it's happening right now, but I don't think it's going to last. It, just think about it. So I get out of bed, I have a shower, I walk into the, I walk into my office, and I start working because I'm not interrupted. I get lunch, maybe I don't have it in my office. I come back to my office and I work for four or five hours. I have dinner. I've got nothing to do. I've got nowhere to go because I'm in a place in Portugal where I can go to the supermarket and that's it. And then I work until nine or 10 o'clock. I'm not getting hammered. I'm not recovering from a hangover. I'm not going to see my friends. I'm not going to watch a movie. I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm giving 12, 14, 15 hours to work completely false. It's a false sense of productivity. So when the rest of the world, when we all go to back to whatever new the new normal is, I believe that, that there's going to be a productivity collapse because people are going to be going, first of all, okay, well, now I can go and see my friends and I want to go and have a good time. And I'm not as committed to you as you thought I was. And I'm also going to be looking at this going, okay, well, I don't like the way I've been treated in the last period, I think there's probably, it may, there may be a company that'll pay me the same amount of money, but create an environment where I feel like a first-class citizen rather than a second-class citizen. I believe that we're in a, a false sense of productivity at the moment. I really like that angle. And it's it's not an angle I've considered myself, but I can see where that can happen, particularly around disciplines and people. And historically, people are not always great with discipline over the long term. Just need to set the standard, I suppose. I may probably made a few assumptions. Can you just give a real basic definition around what is what's the difference between remote work, so that hundred percent remote versus a hybrid model of work? Yeah, so remote is fully remote where there is no office at all. Yes, one of your perks may be go and work in a co-working space, but there's no headquarters that you will go to. Hybrid work is is a real soup. There's no real definition of hybrid other than to say some people will work in an office and there will be some sort of a a head office and some people will not. And some people may work in a 
co-working space in between that. Some people may choose to be in the office all the time. Some people may choose to come in and out of the office on different days. But there is this hybrid model where you've got the challenges. You have a central location where, or, or a location where people can congregate that people could ultimately work there every day. And you have another situation where people could be fully remote all the time and never go into the office. It's a very multidimensional situation hybrid. Some companies I've heard are saying that they will insist that people come in on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the whole company. And then there are other companies, like the example I gave earlier, where it's a smorgasbord of fully remote engineering team to the sales SDRs, sales team coming in four days a week. But it's the needs of the it's the needs of the individual team or the needs of the individual. Younger people want to be in an office because they learn by, by osmosis. They need the vibe. They need that being in a in a cool city. Blah blah blah. So for me, a hybrid is a is a, is this mix between an office where you could work or fully remote and something in between there. So let's go into these the nine best practices that you've identified through your research and working with various companies. My understanding is it was more focused around the best practices of remote work, but do these apply equally to hybrid situations or are there various changes to this list? I actually, when I talk about remote, I am implicitly talking about hybrid. And the reason I am doing that is because if you have a hybrid organization, you will always have a small medium or large percentage of your company working remotely at some time. So if you have a small percentage or a large percentage of your organization working remotely, you need to be thinking about what those people need to operate effectively. So these nine best practices are are applicable to fully remote organizations and hybrid organizations. And actually, hybrid organizations are harder to lead. So with that, hybrid organizations are harder to lead. In what respects? So if you think about it, if you have a remote organization, we're all experiencing this in the same way. We're all working from where from there's no headquarters, there's nowhere to congregate, we're all dispersed. But if you're in a hybrid situation, you could have a group of people working in the office and the rest of people working in a remote environment. And what happens in an office situation versus the remote situation is the people working remote feel like they do not experience work or the culture in the same way. They feel excluded from decisions and communication. They feel they need to advocate more for their work and for who they are and what they are. And they don't feel like they're considered for promotions and progress in the same way that people who are in the office are. And they also do not not appreciate working in the way that the synchronous work communication style that happens in an office versus the asynchronous communication style that is preferred and better for a remote work environment. And when this comes to pass, they ultimately feel like second-class citizens. They don't feel like they are considered in the same way that the people working in an office are. And then once we're in a, in a, in a more fluid environment, they will leave their second-class citizen status and find a first-class citizen status for themselves. Well, mate, I have to say that I've experienced firsthand that feeling of second-class citizen, and I have to say and and say ashamedly that I've also been a leader where I've probably made people feel like a second-class citizen, not necessarily deliberately, but just through my actions and lack of ability to manage those remote environments. And what stands out in my mind, I've been on the, the both sides of this scale, but even at a basic, let's say an old teleconference, a phone conference that you'd have and you might have seven people in the room and you might have two or three of them remotely. Well, if you're the remote person, how often do you, are you forgotten about that you're actually on the phone and the seven people are just having this conversation between themselves and you definitely feel like a second-class citizen? Yeah, and it, and it happens It happens in lots of little ways that all add up to really frustrate and annoy you and, and make you feel less in, the, in this environment. And you, I can see now that there, there are a bunch of companies in Silicon Valley, who are Twitter and others, who are saying we are basically going to be a remote-first hybrid environment. In other words, we're going to work in a remote manner, but you can work from an office or you can work from home. You can choose. And we're going to build a system around that. 
which is really signal, signaling to the market that if you are frustrated in your current role because you're getting burnt out by too many Zoom calls or, or people expecting you to be synchronously available, that actually we are going to build a culture that makes sense for you. All right, mate. We've kept people long enough. The nine best practices, mate. I know the nine. I've got the nine in front of me. I've read the nine through the the chapter of the book. Is there a particular one or two to start with that you believe through your research and interactions with these organizations that is just most important? For me, the most important thing right now and, and actually moving forward will be being deliberate about your culture. Your culture is the glue and it's degrading every day if you aren't working on it. So culture is one. Processizing your business. In other words, if you ask yourself and your leadership team and your organization, what percentage of our processes are written and defined defined and written down versus in people's heads? The answer typically is around 30%, 40% of processes are documented in companies. That means that you have a human bottleneck potential where I don't know what the process is to work with this team or with you. So I've got to call you. I've got to, I've got to have a Skype or a Zoom or whatever call with you to understand how this works versus this process being defined and documented. And then the third point is documentation and moving from a speak first to a write first mentality is a really big challenge for most companies because we are designed for synchronicity. So I would say culture, process, documentation, and then probably the last one would be social connection because social connection is so critical to us as human beings. Those are the ones that, that for me, are front of mind for most companies. I'm going to go to the first one about being deliberate about culture. Seems pretty sensible to talk about given the nature of our podcast. How can, as leaders, we be deliberate about our culture? What do we need to do? So let's assume that we had worked on our culture pre-pandemic. The thing to realize now is that a lot of the work that was being done around culture was a result of having offices, osmosis, informal communication, visibility, availability, being able to read the room, informal feedback, formal feedback, informal recognition, etc. All happened in, in this weird state based on, and so now you've got to double down on these things. You've got to overemphasize your mission and your vision. You've got to overemphasize your values and, and the behaviors associated with those values. You've got to recognize and reward more. I believe that if you want to say something to your entire company, you've got to say it three or four times. Exactly the same thing, but in different ways. Because in this environment, whether it's hybrid or fully remote, people are not engaged as they were in the room. They're not listening in the same way. You know, my one-year-old could be crying now and I'm not fully engaged. So when it comes to culture, assuming you've been working on your culture, it's doubling down on it and tripling down on it and talking about it and mentioning it and coming up with ways to slip the mission in and the vision and the values into your conversation and then building on employee of the month or building on how you reward, reward and recognize how you train and mentor and educate. You know, it's, it's almost like you, whatever you did previously, triple it, talk about it three times more. What I'm really taking from that, Brett, is that, as you said, if, if organizations have been deliberate previous to pandemic, then that's great. But they need to really double down, triple down on that and be really specific about time that and energy they put into it and carving out space in their workday to make sure that happens because previous working in the office, those some of those things just happen naturally. So maybe you didn't need to be as deliberate about it. But if you don't take that effort and really carve out, it's almost like time blocking time to make sure you're, you're connecting with people and having the certain types of meeting. Because if you don't do that, it's just going to fade away to oblivion. Absolutely. It's, it's spot on. It's, it's being very intentional and deliberate about it. Our interview will continue after this. An expression of gratitude or reciprocity, no matter how large or small, is an important part of a healthy culture and relationships. Our friends at Jangler have a great app that allows you to send a gift card with a personal video, voice message or funny gif. You can send right away or schedule to send on the perfect day and time. Set and forget. I like that. 
I have found it perfect for clients, employees, birthdays, or any celebration where I can't be there in person. It's quick, easy to send, and you can spend instantly, in-store or online, when you receive a card. Check it out at jangler.com.au. Reading some of the some of the great work you've put out there and you obviously do a lot of research and, and that's your wheelhouse. I want to go to the one of the last ones you mentioned, in at least in the top four, about build social connections because I, I read some of the flavors through some of your stuff. You seem quite passionate about and the impact more so of if we're not having those regular social connections, how that can impact on people. Can you talk about that a little bit for us? So one of the challenges that's happening right now is we are zoomed out at the end of the day, we, you know, the last thing we want to do is, is have another call. So go and look at remote companies. Remote companies work asynchronously. So they deliberately avoid meetings. They avoid this experience because for this to happen, I need to be available and present and you need to be available and present, which means that we actually can't work. We can't do the work we need to do when we're on this call. And if you do eight hours of calls because things are not documented, et cetera, et cetera, then if somebody says to you, let's do a drinks call for your ninth hour of that day, you're like going, I don't want to do this. I, I'm not, you know, I, I've just been staring at these faces, the screen all day. I, the last thing I want to do is, is do a quiz or a, a this or a that. So remote work companies are very good at moving synchronous work, which requires this interaction, to asynchronous work, which doesn't require this interaction. And what I see in remote companies is they are very focused on social connection and how they do social connection. So Zapier, for example, have 100 hashtag fun Slack channels because they believe that micro communities build the soul community. Hotjar design social into the working week for the entire company of over 100 people. So there's different ways of doing it, but they're very deliberate about it because they understand that in a remote work environment, it's harder to read how people are feeling. It's harder to get the informal pulse of the company. You don't have proximity. You don't have visibility. You can't manage by walking around. You don't recognize if somebody is unusually withdrawn or depressed or unhappy. And these things are hard to read. So, and they're happening in all of our companies right now. So remote companies design this into it where they create environments of psychological safety and they build it so that the organization is mainly asynchronous. So if you do actually have a video call with 20 other people or the entire company, you're actually super pumped about it because you haven't been on video the whole day. It's not a big deal to be on a video call with 20 other people or 30 other people because you want to see everybody. You want to, you haven't spoken, you haven't actually spoken to these people for a while. And so they create this psychologically safe environment where you can talk about issues, but they also create a work environment where you can experience social connection in an in a way that's not a burden to you. Well, I do have to say that it- you said earlier about you guys are in lockdown and we spoke earlier about how you spend a fair bit of time on Zoom, not as much today. So I just really should thank you for spending some time online and on Zoom with us today as well. And you know, not saying no, that's the last thing I want to do. <laughs> I had, a, I had a, a good night's sleep last night and very few calls. So it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. Good on you, mate. Thank you. One of the other things in the, the nine that we speak about, so we've gone through the first four Focus on communication because you touched on that as well and the importance of communicating, communicating, communicating. Tell us a bit about that one. Yeah, so companies that are transitioning from office to hybrid or remote are learning to to move away from this in-person meetings, this, this situation where we expect immediate response and need to be actually learning how to move towards asynchronous or semi-synchronous communication. So it's not easy to do because as human beings, we're actually, synchronicity is our thing because we want an immediate response and we want to be able to talk to people immediately and respond immediately. But if you design this really well, then as a leadership team, you can focus on communicating and including 
first of all, what how your communication architecture should look. So there are companies that say we do not use Slack. There are companies that say we only use Slack. We do not use email. Email is only external. There are companies that design this way of working so that we don't have Asana and Monday and Trello. We only use one of these things and we use it for this form of communication because it wasn't that wasn't necessary in an office environment. You know, in an office environment, we would lean over and have a chat or say, can we quickly meet after lunch and, and, and just sort this bit out? But now you need to have a much better structured system around communication, communication architecture, and leadership need to be thinking about this in terms of how many times should I repeat this and how do I repeat it so that it doesn't feel repetitive. So communication for me is, you know, it's the oxygen of a remote environment. And if you get it right, as a leader, you are making sure that people understand what's required of you, of them, down to almost a a task-based level. This is the project. What's the task? Are we in communication? Yes. Can I leave you alone to get on with this? Do you understand how to do the task? Yes. Okay, I'm out of here. Contact me when you need me. And I will build this environment where you can fulfill your potential and where you can do your best work. And I will not micromanage you. I will not over-monitor you unless you need it. So for me, communication is just this critical element that we took a lot for granted in in office-based environments. Based on what you're saying, it sounds like a lot or maybe all of these nines are really they're part of the one system. You, know, you should never look at each of these in isolation because that last bit, one of the nine best practices is focus on output and results. And that's sort of what you just alluded to there through the communication and not micromanaging. Is that right? Yeah, it, that's exactly right. You, it, essentially, actually, all of this falls under the umbrella of culture. It ultimately comes down to culture. But you're completely right. If you are communicating effectively and you are communicating transparently then you are building trust and you're building psychological safety. And if you have trust, you will rely on your people to deliver the outcomes. So you can see that it all weaves together. And this is actually one of the challenges for leaders is for a lot of companies, this is going to become a really big transformation because you can't just do one of them and go, okay, we're good here. You know, we've done communication because there are knock-on dominoes that you need to deal with once you've once you deliver on that. Yeah, as you alluded to, I mean, that is culture. And what I really love about this nine best practices, and it just gives people some sort of security that, hey, they can follow something. Because there's a, I think there's often a question like, what is culture really? You know, and really culture for me is those behaviors in an organization that we accept. Sometimes they can be good behaviors, sometimes they can be not good behaviors. If we don't address them, then that's a culture you're setting. But this does give people something to really follow. But I probably should also put a premise on this, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or right here, that just because one of the best practices is processize the business or become delivered about culture, what that looks like in your organization could be very different or would be very different to the next organization. So it's not just a cookie cutter thing. You have to have deliberate conversations around this stuff. When I work with my clients, we sit down and we do a a SWOT analysis on each of the nine. And we basically do the SWOT analysis and we go, okay, in this sort of a project, what are the low-hanging fruit that we can demonstrate progress really quickly? And we may decide social connection, and then we'll we'll build initiatives around that. And what's going to take be harder to do, what's going to be take longer to do, and then we'll build processes and, and, and initiatives around that. But once you understand where your organization is stronger or weaker, and you will have different strengths in different areas of this. If you have a big engineering team, their documentation will probably be better than the rest of the whole the rest of the organization. And so you can you may be able to Atlassian is, is is an Australian company. You may be able to take what they're doing in Jira, move it over to Confluence and get everybody over to Confluence. And that may not be such a hard transition versus going and saying, okay, now we're going to go completely asynchronous and everybody's going, oh my word, what does this mean and how do we do it? So each company is going to have a different requirement in these nine best practices. Mate, thank you for clarifying. There's one other I want to ask you to explain 
And then there's the final two, and I've deliberately left these final two last because I think they're they're meaty topics, and I think you can offer well, you can definitely offer huge value in in how we can help leaders there. Add structure. That's one of the nine best practices. What does that mean? So we shouldn't expect our people to know or understand how to work in this new environment. Yes, they're adapting, but actually, if we give them some structure, we give them guidelines, we give them a little bit of stability in this really unstable environment, in this volatile environment. So companies like Hotjar, fully remote company, they say Monday is their get the week going day. It's about planning. Tuesday is focus day. They limit chat. They limit comms to a minimum, only to critical stuff. Wednesday is meeting free day. Thursdays is leadership planning, monthly meetings and company meetings. And Friday is one-to-ones, final interviews if you're interviewing anybody, and then demos around new products. And they say that if you work at Hotjar, you will be available between 2 p.m. Central European time and 5 p.m. Central European time. Obviously, you will work during the day, but those are the those are the hours that you will be online. This gives a great structure to people. In other words, I can work within this environment now. So not all companies can go to the extent of Hotjar where they say, okay, this is your week. But this kind of structure gives an anxious environment, just a little bit of stability and a little bit of, a little bit of, okay, it's, we, Wednesdays is no meetings day. Don't book a meet, don't try and book a meeting in on Wednesday. I can, I can do deep focused work on Wednesday. So yeah, structure, structure is people underestimate the value of small things around structure. I have to say I'm with you hundred percent. I'm a structure sort of guy, but what would you say to people out there that, you know, they think structure inhibits their ability to create but my belief and i think it sounds like yours is structure actually allows people the space for creativity first of all say i'm sorry to pop the bubble but most businesses don't require creativity fundamentally at the moment they require execution and actually execution requires process and discipline and structure if you are in a creative environment and you're now in a in a hybrid or fully remote environment You can't just walk into the boardroom now and start brainstorming because the boardroom gave you your structure. Now you got to work out how do you do this where you've got three people in the boardroom and four people working from home. Are you using a mirror board or what are you using? You still need some structure. So I would say nonsense or another word. The last two, develop trust and accountability. How do you develop trust and accountability when you've got all these remote working situations happening? Trust essentially, if you look at the remote companies and all remote companies are like this, they either are fully transparent or they are leaning towards transparent because transparency means that I have nothing to hide. You know exactly the color of my underwear. That's it. There's nothing to hide here. So if I have nothing to hide, you can trust me. And in a remote environment, if you don't have transparency, if you don't lean towards transparency as far as you can, then there is doubt, which then builds distrust. And every single remote company I've interviewed and every single remote company I've studied uses transparency as an asset, as a, as a, as a tool, because it's, it's just normal. I believe that if your company involves remote workers in any way, your success is going to be contingent on codifying what transparency means to your company and then promoting the policies and and behaviors that uphold this. There's another element of this, which is around psychological safety. And Google did this research project into their high-performing teams and what the high-performing behaviors were. And they sliced and diced. They spent about two years slicing and dicing everything they could it was called Project Aristotle. They cut it, PhDs, diversity, inclusive teams, whatever. The one thing that all high-performing teams have had in common was psychological safety. And psychological safety is the belief and trust that you won't be punished when you make a mistake, fundamentally. So if you build psychological safety where I can be who I want to be and be who I am, then I can trust you. 
and you build this trust around it. And psychological safety is around demonstrating fallibility. It's about demonstrating humility. It's about demonstrating humanity. Because if this trust is missing, then managers try to micromanage and then employees try to prove that they're working and they end up burning out. So for me, the trust is, is just fundamental to what's required in a, in a hybrid or remote working environment. And you build that through transparency and psychological safety. So on that, what impact does a leader have on building that trust and that transparency and the behaviors that they show that could impact that in a positive and or a negative way that you've seen? If you as a leader in these times do not show that you are struggling, there is nobody right now who isn't experiencing close to burnout or high anxiety trying to balance and juggle and spin all of these plates at the same time. With my team, I did this quite early on. I just put my hand up and, and I said, I have a one-year-old. Well, at the time, you know, he was four-month-old, just a little bit older. I'm four-month-old and, a, and, a, and an almost three-year-old. I am not going to get eight hours of work done during the day. I'm going to work at night. I'm going to work between 9 and 12. I'm not going to communicate between 9 and 12. I'm not going to expect any communication at all. I'm getting three or four hours of joy with my children. I don't want that to stress me out that I'm not getting that work done. I'm going to make it up at night. I just want you to tell you, I want to tell you that because I've been stressing about it. And actually that opened up. Two of my other team members went, actually, this is our situation. This is my situation. And, you know, thank you for, thank you. But it's the leader's responsibility to demonstrate it and to share what they're going through. It's a leader's responsibility to talk openly and respectfully about the challenges that we're feeling, the stresses that we're under, and then to create strategies to manage these these anxieties and these issues. Yeah, very well said, Brett. Thank you for sharing, mate. We'll move you to the last one. You're almost out of the hot seat. Like customize the recruitment and onboarding process. That's got to be a pretty tough situation given I'd imagine their circumstances. I know I've had some clients where they've recruited and they haven't really even met these people in the traditional sense face-to-face previously. Share a bit on that. Yeah, so if you look at what remote companies do, they never had the in-person gut instinct thing to rely on. So what they, what they typically do is they build systems, processes in their recruitment capability. So first thing they do is they involve more of their team to work with the shortlisted candidates, not to interview, but to work with. So we go from, let's say we go from a a broad group of candidates down to two or three that are potentially suitable. And then we design a task that has multiple interaction points and multiple channels of communication. So let's say, for example, we're doing a product management search and we get somebody, we get product engineering and marketing together and we build a task, something around the funnel and the leaking funnel. And we say to these candidates, you can speak to product, somebody in product, you can speak to somebody in engineering, you can speak to somebody in marketing. At the end of the next two weeks, we want you to present a solution to this problem. This is your task. And when you speak to product, you can only speak to them using voice. When you communicate with engineering, you can only use video And when you communicate with marketing, you can only use written word. So now what we're doing is we're creating a task. We've got people expecting a call from two or three candidates or multiple calls from two or three candidates where they were all written word or Slack channel or voice or video, whereby they're now interacting with the candidate. And they're actually working with the candidate over a period of two, two weeks. A company like Hotjar actually pays these candidates for two days of consultancy. So they say, we respect your time. We're going we're gonna to work with you to solve this. And actually the person who comes out as the strongest based on now, now this, is, this is where it gets different and really interesting. It's not just about skills and experience and our gut instinct. It's skills and experience. It's the ability to do the job. It's the quality of the work delivered. It's the behavior during the process. It's the verbal and written communication capabilities of the individual. And if you've done a really good job of this, it's the fit with the values of the company that allow you to really analyze this candidate in the right way. 
And if you've got three or four people giving you this feedback, you don't need to meet them. This is the beauty of it. And interestingly enough, the outcome of this kind of process, using a values fit evaluation, ultimately ends up in with very diverse teams. So diversity happens as a natural, as a product of a well-run interview process. I love that example. I'm a, a big fan myself in in anything, whether it's recruitment or even from a sporting perspective and coaching. If we can set up real-life environments, they're so great for that learning process. Again, the interaction, uh, very difficult to hide behaviours that maybe are not the sort of behaviours you're looking for when you're, when you're working in a real-life scenario and, and, and really being challenged by real problems as opposed to setting up some fabricated sort of interview environment, I suppose, is what a lot of them are. Yeah, yeah. Mate, I will make sure that in our show notes and on some of the marketing stuff, we'll list out those nine points again so that the listeners can be very, very clear on what they are. But I want to thank you for taking the time to explain those. You've been in this space for a long time. As we spoke before, we hit the record button. This is a passion of yours. And I said, what do you do outside of this? I said, not, not much. I'm in lockdown. I've got young kids, but I just love this stuff. In all of your experience, what would be that single biggest bit of advice that you would like to pass on to leaders to help them on their journey, specifically around this remote working best practices and how you think you can give them advice to help them? I'd say two things. Have a conversation with your team and say, things are never going to be the same again, but we as an organization, as a team, have to work on this. It's not the leadership's responsibility. It's all of us. The second thing I would say is, and this is this requires a little bit of work, but actually company culture development and culture generally is the one sustainable competitive advantage that you as a leader have control over. And if you start treating it like a function in your business, in other words, you dedicate time to it, the return on investment, I can almost guarantee it. Here, here. Fantastic advice. Mate, how can our listeners get hold of Brett Putter? I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. My website is www.culturegene.ai, which is culture, G-E-N-E.ai. I take 20 to 25% of my time and spend it learning about culture because really I'm a student of culture. If any of your listeners and audience would like to talk to me about their culture, they can reach out directly at brett at culturegene.ai. I do a, a 5, 5.45 a.m. walk every morning down to the beach. I actually have a call on Wednesday with somebody from Perth at 6 a.m. So that's an ideal time to connect with people down under. So uh, yeah, happy to chat, happy to just learn and, and, and listen and, and hopefully pay it forward and give some advice. Fantastic, mate. I love what you say about the the student of culture. You said that off camera as well, just always learning. There's so much to learn in this space, isn't it? It's always evolving. And people are people, mate. We're pretty different at times. People are beautifully dynamic <laughs> is the word, <laughs> best way to describe it. <laughs> beautifully dynamic. I, I think, do you mind if I use that from time to time? I love that expression. You can trademark it. I haven't. <laughs> Mate, I won't take your thunder there, but I'll certainly use it and I'll, I'll credit you. Mate, I also just, before we really just close up and I say my thank you to you, I want to thank an organization that you utilize and I've experienced their service speak on podcasts. We were talking about them earlier, but a really fantastic service. And that's how we met through their service speak on podcasts and they're helping people who have a really great story and really great experience and really great knowledge to share like you do to help get people on podcasts. So I want to say a shout out to them. They do a fantastic job. Mate, massive thank you to you today. I know it's late in Portugal, tough place to be at the moment, but not normally. It's normally a, a very beautiful place when you can get out and get out on the beach and you're not in lockdown. But mate, thanks very much for your time, your knowledge, sharing those nine best practices. We'll make sure we put a, a plug to your book in the show notes and on all the marketing material as well. So thanks again, mate. I really appreciate you coming on and being a guest on the Culture of Things podcast. Brendan, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And um, yeah, speak on podcasts, so uh, have been really, really, really great. I've been blown away by the, the work. So completely agree with you. And um, thanks for what you're doing. Uh, really appreciate it. 
really appreciate your message and uh, how you're getting out there and, and, and spreading the word. Thank you, my friend. People are beautifully dynamic. What a great quote from Brett. For me, it really sums up the perspective we should take in relation to culture. Culture is dynamic. Because of this, it can be complex. It's always moving, always changing, every day, in small and subtle ways. This is why as leaders, you should never take your finger off the culture button. If you do, culture can quickly become something you're not proud of. It's something you need to continually put effort into developing. Doubling down on culture is even more important when working remotely. These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with Brett. My first key takeaway, leaders have full control over the culture. If a leader doesn't realise this, it's a problem. The words culture is a reflection of leadership keep coming up. As a leader, if you see behaviour that doesn't align with the culture you're working to create, look at yourself first. Ask the question, how have I enabled it? If you can do this honestly and make the changes needed, you will have full control over the culture. My second key takeaway, leaders must focus on creating social connection. This is particularly important in a remote working environment. In a traditional office, the social connection happens without any real effort from the leader. People pass each other in the hallway, they have lunch together, or simply greet each other in the morning when they arrive. Not having this social connection can make team members feel isolated, which will lead to reduced performance and potentially mental health-related issues. Leaders must be deliberate and focus on creating social connection. My third key takeaway, delegation is even more critical in remote working environments. So many leaders talk about delegation, and many do it, but not many do it effectively. The single biggest factor in effective delegation is being crystal clear on communicating the what needs to be achieved, and taking the time to ensure the person taking on the task is crystal clear on what's expected. The person managing the task should then have flexibility in deciding how they achieve it. If this is done well, team members will deliver high standards of work without the leader being over their shoulder. So in summary, my three key takeaways were leaders have full control over the culture. Leaders must focus on creating social connection and delegation is even more critical in remote working environments. A massive thank you to Nick Bendel for his review on Apple Podcasts. Nick has listened to the show since the start. He was also a guest on episode 37, where he shared his journey to have 500 lunches with strangers. Check it out if you haven't already. Thanks again, Nick. I appreciate you. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the socials or send me a message at brendanrogers.com.au. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. Please visit brendanrogers.com.au to access the show notes. If you love the Culture of Things podcast, please subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts. And remember, a healthy culture is your competitive advantage.